Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 180 of Yoga Land. This episode was recorded live at Love Store Yoga with Jason's module one students of his 300 hour training. So for module one, they're focusing on creating space and freedom in the hips and legs. And we just sort of carried through with that theme for the podcast and talked about the alignment of the hips and legs in backbends. And Jason talks through three approaches that are slightly different from the blueprint that we've been given. So, you know, as he says, we sort of all have the on paper idea of alignment that we've been taught, but not all of us fit the on paper description. Our bodies don't all fit into this one mold. So we sort of talk through different options for giving yourself or your students if you're experiencing knee pain and back bends. And we also talk about how the tilt of the pelvis can affect back bends in different body types. And lastly, some unconventional preparations for reaching the arms overhead, right? So when you're in a pose like Urdhva like wheel, you want to get the maximal flexion of your arms. And so we talk about how you can best prepare the body for that. It's something you might not have thought of. I love episodes like this because it's just endlessly fascinating to experiment in your own practice. And it's the best way to become a great teacher. So he offers some really good ideas for taking to your mat and experimenting with your own body. And then you can respond, I think, more skillfully to your students who are saying to you, not in these words, but I don't fit the mold. Like this alignment doesn't work for me. And you can offer them another way. Before I start the interview, I just want to mention that if you're in the Bay Area, you can join me at Love Story Yoga this Friday. You can join me and Stephanie Snyder and Jason to talk about self-care. We'll be there this Friday, March 6th from 6 to 9 p.m. You can register by going to lovestoryyoga.com and clicking on through to register. I hope to see you there. I'm so excited to be doing a live event and to be speaking to these two. They're so thoughtful and they have really different perspectives. So come join us for a conversation about making self-care meaningful and why it's important right now in our lives. And enjoy the interview. Hi, Jason. Hi. I feel like I need to say hi, Ginger, too. Ginger is here. At Love Story Yoga. <laughs> Love Story Yoga. In San Francisco. Yeah. With your Module 1 students yes, as well. Yes. 300-hour students. So we try to do this every training. And I think we've probably not just done it every training, but we've probably done this every module. Yep. Is recorded a live episode. Yes. And one of the things that I enjoy most in teacher training context is just Q&A. And the reason I like Q&A in teacher training context so much is in other teaching environments, there's just not as much of it. Most teaching environments are, they're a little less didactic. I come in, I teach X, Y, and Z. I do my best to pay attention and respond to people, but it's not as much of an open and, and communication-based forum. Yeah. And so we aren't officially going to do a Q&A this round, but we'll do it for the next round. For the next module? For the next module. Okay. And it's always nice to do that. Yeah. And not an ad. I can set up my air table so people can put their questions in a form, and then I'll have them in a spreadsheet, and it'll make me so happy. But speaking of that, if Airtable wants to sponsor us, I, know, exactly. I would totally make it I don't it think they want to sponsor believe, anyone, yeah, which sure. is why I don't mind talking about them. Okay. But yeah, 
Okay. It's a cool thing. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we were working a bunch with backbends today. And it's kind of interesting. I usually save more focus on backbending for the second module because second module is more core spine. But we started to talk a little bit more about backbending today because we were talking about discomfort in the knees and backbends. And many of the things that work on paper and that are true under certain circumstances in backbends don't work for certain bodies that are having pain in knees. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things where I think you get to be mentally very flexible is when you help different students over time troubleshoot different poses. And so as a function of looking at knees and troubleshooting knee challenges, we've been getting into backbends. And also the other thing is I just wrote kind of a multi-part blog and a bunch of social media content on backbends. I've been thinking a lot about backbends lately because to be totally honest, unlike most of the time when I'm I'm not, when I'm lying, most of the time I realized not too long ago that my backbends had been really underattended to. I probably went about 18 months just really not doing many backbends, meaning I think it had probably been at least a year since I did Urdhva Dhanurasana. The reason that that was is because I just wasn't inclined to do Urdhva Dhanurasana, you know? And so I have circled back a lot to working with backbends. And having had that little break, if you will, I think that time away has given me some interesting and valuable perspective. Uh, and I thought we could share okay. some of those changing perspectives. I, I'm so curious. Maybe this is not the direction you want to go, but like, what are the things on paper that we think are the instructions that are supposed to work for backbends that don't work for some bodies? So when we're talking about reclined backbends, so bridge, urdhva inverted staff pose, those things, the information that we're always going to get, and it is not incorrect, this is like a very good starting place, is your feet are hip width apart and the outer edges of the feet are parallel to each other. Or if you have a really liberal teacher, the inner edges of the feet are parallel to each other. Mm -hmm. But we have that idea. And then along with that idea, we have the idea that the thigh bones are parallel to each other mm -hmm. and internally rotated. Now, again, that is correct, but that is not the only correct. One of the things I've been thinking about for a long period of time is the difference between a preference and a mandate. Mm -hmm. So I still have those things as a first default go-to preference. But what I know now through a lot more education and a lot of time on the job training is those aren't mandates. And those preferences, they don't actually work very well for many different bodies. So we have to be mentally flexible enough to have those as maybe our starting point. That's kind of our launch point. And then if the pose is working for the knees and for the lower back, maintain it. But if it isn't working for the knees and the lower back, we might need some other strategies for it. So this is a huge sticking point for me because having come from a ballet background, it was really, really hard for me to internally rotate my thighs and my feet to the extent that teachers wanted me to forever. I haven't fact-checked this, and I can fact-check it after this interview, but I mean, to me, it seems like a fairly arbitrary decision that the feet have to be parallel. Correct. Yeah. It's like it's more informed by the beauty and the symmetry of that alignment than 
anything else. Yeah. And then let me also give it like, let me give the extremely empathetic response, which is as a yoga teacher, teaching a public class, you got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to start with black and white, highly identifiable things Mm -hmm. and then reinforce those things. It's just when you teach a public class to a lot of different people for a long period of time, and you have many different people getting into any given pose, you need your basic go-to way to get everyone to the same neighborhood, right? But over the years, what we should understand is different bodies might be coming from different directions to that neighborhood, and they need to work a little bit differently in the pose. So some of the common things that I will have people do is when they're having knee discomfort, let's just kind of stick with that for a second. When they're having knee discomfort, which is not to analyze or diagnose anyone's knees, but give some basic thoughts around troubleshooting common knee challenge in those poses. One of the things is to take the feet a little further away from your butt. One of the things is to step both feet wider. Mm -hmm. And also one of the things is under some conditions to actually allow the feet and the knees to move a little bit wider away from each other. So they're no longer parallel, but they're working with a little bit of turnout. Mm -hmm. The conventional idea is that this is going to compress the lower back. Right. The conventional idea is not correct. This doesn't mean that everyone should do this. And it doesn't mean everyone is going to be comfortable in this. When you take the feet wider and when you turn them out a little bit more, typically what happens is that's helping you give greater access and engagement to your outer and posterior hip muscles. So glutes and glute helpers. Now, none of the glutes actually cross into the lumbar region. So engaging the glutes, which has a neutral or posterior tilting effect on the pelvis, Mm -hmm. that action, there is no mechanism by which that can increase technical compression of the lower back. Interesting. But it can feel like it does. And the reason it can feel like it does is because the glutes are intimately networked into the thoracolumbar fascia, which is a thickened band of connective tissue in the lower back. And the thoracolumbar fascia, the the tone or the tension is increased by lat and glute engagement. So here's the thing. When you engage your glutes in backbends, that does increase the thoracolumbar fascia tension. So that increases the tension of the lower back, but it doesn't actually produce compression. How far down does the thoracolumbar fascia? All the way to the sacrum. Oh, Yeah, it blends all the way down into there. So here's the thing where, especially in this context, it's, it's kind of difficult, especially we don't have some visual examples, but the bottom line I want to get to is I don't have any skin in the game as to how someone executes a backbend. I want people to have an equanimous and satisfying experience. But I understand that when I teach yoga, I still more or less tell people in a general context, step the feet about hip width apart, step your heels towards your butt, keep the thighs parallel, boom, 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 boom. But I know now that that's not the only truth. And that in order to troubleshoot a situation where that isn't helping, 
you need to have other strategies. And you have to understand, you have to not operate from a place of fear or not knowing. And the idea that taking the feet wider and using more glute produces lumbar compression is a mechanical impossibility, Hmm. but it can increase the tension. Mm-hmm. And so not everyone is going to like the tension, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so if that doesn't work for you, don't do it that mm-hmm. way. But it is not a dangerous thing to do. But for many people, it is a very helpful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go back just so you gave three possibilities. One is, and we were talking in reference to knee pain. So one is to step the feet further away from the buttocks. The other is to step the feet a little bit wider. A little bit wider. And then the third is turning the feet and thighs out a, a little bit. A little bit out. So... I just want you to talk through for people like what those three things do to help the knees. Obviously, stepping the feet further away makes the angle of less acute. Yeah. So if your heels, we'll put it this way, if your heels are too close to your butt and you are lifting up into bridge or urdhvadhanurasana, if the shin bone is not vertical, but it's off vertical because the heels are too close in, that can, I don't want to say it's dangerous, but, but for some people that's problematic because it puts too much tension on the far end of the quadricep. It puts too much tension on the bottom of the quad and it just pulls at the knee itself and it's Mm. unpleasant. Okay. So stepping the feet a little bit forward can decrease the excess tension that's being put on the front of the knee. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two, taking the feet a little bit wider and there's probably – And that's why I'm kind of using a hedge. I'm not saying there's a specific amount. I'm using a hedge. I'm saying a little bit wider. When you think about this, imagine you reach down and you were going to pick up a heavy box, right? Like a heavy piece of luggage. And that luggage was, I don't know, 40 pounds, 50 pounds. Imagine your feet being too close together. It's difficult to pick something that has a lot of resistance to it. Hmm. It's difficult to pick that thing So like if you're you're picking up your bottom- Yes. I mean, really? like. Well, because you're picking up the weight of your body. Yeah. And if your body has a lot of tension in it, some people's bodies have a lower amount of tension. If you have a lower amount of tension, you don't need as much strength to pull on the thing. But if you have a lot of tension in your quads and a lot of tension in your hip flexors, you need more power mm-hmm. to deal with that same with that amount of tension. Mm-hmm. So for people typically that are tighter in the front of the leg and the front of the hip, having the feet a little bit wider is like picking up something that is heavier with the feet a little bit further apart. Mm -hmm. Now, super far apart, and that's also not going to work, Yeah, right? If you just take the feet as wide apart as you can go, it's not going to work. But there's so many people, and the same goes for hands, like anytime I'm seeing someone with motion restriction, in their back bend. I mean, everyone has some motion restriction, but uh, it's a nice way of saying it. anytime I've seen someone that is that's tight in their thighs and in their shoulders and back bends, the first thing I try to help them do is take a wider, mm-hmm. wider position of hands and feet. Mm-hmm. But, we, but we can only do that if we understand that there is not a logical downside to this, right? We we just have to understand that having the feet and the hands a little bit wider is not going to jam or compress anything. Right. It's just not. It doesn't mean it works well for everyone, but we have to not be afraid of that as a default. Okay. And then turning the feet and legs out. Typically, it's going to give you more glute. 
so, power. And it's also going to decrease how much your psoas and your, if you were to do splits, like we did this in class today, usually when you do splits, you angle the front leg straight forward. But if you take the front leg out at a 20 degree angle, you have a more, it's hard to phrase. If you're doing splits with the front leg out at 20 degrees to the, to its own side, you have less resistance that you have to deal with. When you take the feet a little bit wider and a little bit turned out, you are going to access more muscles on the backside. And also you will have a decreased amount of tension in hip flexors and quads that you have to deal with. So you have more strength lifting hmm. against a decrease of tension that you're lifting against. Well, does it also help for people who are like tighter on the outside of the leg? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Okay. So especially if you're most outer quadricep, the vastus lateralis, if that's really tight or tight outer hip IT band, taking those off at a little bit of an angle, it just decreases the amount of tension that you're having to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that a large majority of the knee pain that people complain about in backbends is inner knee and like front of the knee? In most backbends, yeah. 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 So that's most Not always, but yeah. It's more likely to be an issue of tension on the anterior and or medial side of the knee. And so then what we need to do is we need to figure out a strategy to change the angle that that tension is being transmitted through the body. And it's, I was saying this to class earlier that if you have knee stuff in normal daily life, that's complicated. But if you don't have knee stuff in normal daily life, you just have knee stuff in bridge pose or Urdhvatanyarasana, that should not be so complicated. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have these other strategies. And we're, I just want to make the strong point again that I'm not suggesting that feet parallel, hip width apart is wrong. I'm just suggesting it's not the only right. It's not going to work that well for certain bodies, especially motion-restricted bodies. And that motion restriction, the stress tends to be transmitted to the front of the knee joint. And you just have to take a slightly different position. Did you try the same things with someone who came to you and said their outer knees hurt? I actually have never heard anyone say their outer knees hurt. In back Once bends. in a while, outer knees can hurt in back bends. I would try those same things. And if those things didn't work, I would try the opposite of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where I feel like I bring this up in a lot of different contexts, right? It's, it's one of the ways in which I feel like some of the teachings of the yoga sutras are just baked into a process. And the yoga sutra there is Pratipaksha Bahavanam, which is when something isn't working, try the opposite of that thing. So, right. And it's one of these things that I think that we're, we're so inclined and for good reason. We're so inclined as yoga teachers to want to be right, to want to be singular, to want what we heard from our teacher to be the thing that we say. And sometimes we don't immerse ourselves enough into counterpoints and nuance. And it's really important that we continue to question. And it's really important that we continue to get nuance and that we see that that the world is just, it's just not a black and white situation. We can't hold like a singular 
ideological perspective on how a body works because then we're only going to be working with bodies that work that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's another thing that comes up, which is pelvic rotation in backbends. I don't want to say I'm singing a totally different tune that I used to sing, but you know me and I'm willing to... I'm willing to take evidence. You also know me well enough to know that I reject evidence at all costs when it's first presented to me. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Do you want to talk about that? Or? I can't even. I, I can't talk about it. It's just too deep. I can't open, <laughs> I can't open the wound. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very stubborn at first, but I'm actually pretty open to revision over time. So my first... And it's just a personality thing. Like my first response is to push back. Uh, anything that doesn't fit into my worldview, my first response is to strongly push back. Okay. Pelvis. I used to be an absolute advocate for posteriorly tilting the pelvis and backbends, meaning rotating the front rim of the pelvis backwards. So lengthening the buttock down and lifting the hip points up. Like we, what we think of as tucking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to be an absolute advocate for that. And I will say why I was an advocate for that. It's not that I don't advocate for that. It's that I see it as much more complicated than I used to see it. I used to have a strong aversion to the opposite of that which is to anteriorly tilt your pelvis in a backbend. And I'll talk about why I, why I see that. I think that both have their time and place depending on the circumstance. And again, this is just another one of those things of it just takes a lot of time and honesty to see nuance because if we don't see nuance and we get hardened into these ideological positions, I can just guarantee we're overlooking so much. So here's the upside of having a little anterior pelvic tilt in your backbends. So when you do a little bit of an anterior tilt in your backbends, that is a very good way of going directly to the thoracic spine. So when I tilt my pelvic rim a little bit forward in a backbend, meaning the front rim of my pelvis rocks towards the front of my thighs, the upside of that is that's going to let me get into my chest. That's going to let me get into the thoracic spine, which theoretically I'm wanting to move into. But there's a downside to that, which is that for many people, that is actually the mechanism of compressing the lumbar spine. Right. Is that that anterior tilt, if it's excess. Mm -hmm. If you begin as a kind of lordotic person, right? I mean, if you begin as a person. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So just kind of thinking default. If your baseline, I guess. Yeah. So right. that's the thing that just... So often certain hardened ideologies just don't think through is that different body types are probably going to have to create slightly different actions to find evenness. So I don't start, even with backbends, I don't start with the idea that the feet should be here, the feet should be there, you should forward tilt or backwards tilt. I start with the idea that your backbend should be even, it should be equanimous. It should be sustainable. In sensation. In sensation. Yes. Yeah, Which is yeah, very yeah. different from look. Correct. Yeah. It, so we start with the outcome, but we don't start with the memorized script, right? And But that takes more attention. That takes more education. That takes more nuance. And that takes more confidence, actually. 
So my go-to way in most backbends is to not really think at all about pelvic rotation. Mm-hmm. It's to not really try to rotate it back, to not really try to rotate it forward. Just let it do what it actually does and to work the legs and the arms and the trunk properly. But I, I, I usually don't in my backbends any longer try to tuck my tailbone more. I usually don't try to anteriorly tilt my pelvis more. I try to feel what my back actually feels like. Mm-hmm. And if things are feeling good, I will allow for a little bit more anterior tilt. And that might take me more into my upper back. If that starts to feel like it jams up my lower back, then I posteriorly tilt it a little bit. So I let the pelvis either do whatever it needs to do, or I respond to what I'm feeling in my body by creating a little bit of anterior posterior tilt. I'm trying to make the pose work in my skin. I'm not trying to use my skin to execute someone else's drill. What if you were doing a drop back? <laughs> I don't do drop backs. I mean, <laughs> I pre-call 911. What are <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, look, I don't want to explain this to you, but within the next five to 12 minutes, uh, there's going to be a whole host of very severe mechanical injuries. If you could set a good sports team over here, stat, uh, we're at 118A. <laughs> Okay, but seriously, like if you're the kind of person that can is working on dropbacks. You're gonna have to anteriorly tilt. Yeah. 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 Because if you posteriorly tilt, your pelvis is gonna go too far backwards too soon. Or you can just keep the pelvis neutral. Because you have to counterweight. Right. That's what I was thinking. Right. So yeah. you have to in that drop back, you have to keep your pelvis in front of the feet and then directly over the heels for as long as possible. The moment the pelvis is behind the heels you're dropping right, back. Right, right. So for a deeper drop back, uh, you kind of you kind of just have to leave well enough alone. You kind of just left have, have to leave the let the pelvis do what it's going to do or you have to encourage a little bit of anterior tilt in the process. Yeah. Because if you posterior tilt, that's going to pull you back. And it's going to it's going to drop the spine. Do we want to talk about arms and shoulders or do we want to talk about I'm so like I actually sparked the question to me yeah let's talk about arms and shoulders okay all right I had a What's diff- the question? I said I no I had oh, a okay. different I said oh go there then the go question with, is just I'm question. thinking now I'm thinking about scorpion I'm thinking about all these questions <laughs> that scorpion's fine for me scorpion's way easier than drop so the pelvis my and feet scorpion. don't anywhere near my head right no but you you have yeah you have a nice even scorpion in the um, same way that a board is nice and even and it's <laughs> But no, I I guess what I'm thinking about is just as this kind of foundational, I'm using air quotes, principle of backbends that that are so often taught that the pelvis should be posteriorly rotating, that's not possible in scorpion, right? I mean, that's what the pelvis does in scorpion. That's not possible in hollow back. So in hollow back, it's a strong anterior pelvic tilt. Mm -hmm. In scorpion, it's a good, strong posterior pelvic tilt. The pelvis is definitely rocking back. Interesting. Yeah. It's been a long time for me. Yeah. It's a tricky pose. One of the things I like about Scorpion is it's one of those hard poses that is easy to do a little bit of. If you can do handstand, just bend your knees a little bit. Yeah. Just do handstand and bend your knees. Yeah. That's the beginning. It's like handstand with bent knees. That's the beginning of Scorpion. And then it can kind of build from there. There's a lot of back bends that the demand of the back bend, it's very hard to get a feel for at all. Unless you have a lot of range of motion in your backbends. But there's other backbends that are these hard backbends that 
that actually scale pretty easily for people that don't have big backbends. So what you were kindly saying earlier is I have an even scorpion and I can balance easily in it. I just don't go far. You know, so it's one of these poses where even though I have limited range in my backbends, that's a posture that it works for my body. I can practice that pose. Mm -hmm. Whereas a drop back, unless I have an army of staff, it's not going to happen without breakage and concussion. I'm the opposite. Scorpion is really hard on my back, maybe because I can't posteriorly tilt enough for it not to hurt. And drop backs have always been accessible for me. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. That's probably it. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't want to talk about shoulders and arms. What I wanted to bring in is that's a lot of the technical stuff, but I, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about are some of the uncommon backbending preparations, like very good, very common backbending preparations are very straightforward. You do things to lengthen your hip flexors. You do things to lengthen your quadriceps. You do things to strengthen your hip extensors, so your hamstrings and your butt. Other good common backbending preparations are you do anterior shoulder openers, right? So front of shoulder, front of chest, and you do posterior shoulder strengtheners, right? So those are very common backbending preparations in terms of principles. And then the other common backbending preparation principle that's pretty basic is you go from less range of motion to more range of motion, right? So typically, if you're building a flow of increasing magnitude and backbends, you're going to go from a locust to a cobra to a bow to a camel to a bridge to an urdhvadhanurasana to a drop back, right? So there's that commonality of you're lengthening the front and you're strengthening the back and you're going from low demand, not low muscular demand, but low motion demand to high motion demand, right? Those are like the the really straightforward things. But there's two other physical regions of the body that are uncommon, that are super helpful and overlooked. And then there's two concepts of preparation that I think are really helpful and that are really overlooked. So the first more mechanical technical concept is I guess I am going to talk about the shoulders and arms. When you do arm overhead backbends, so when you do upward facing bow pose, urdhvadhanurasana, wheel, whatever people call it, the arms are reaching overhead. When you're in any backbend where the arms are going overhead, you don't just need to open up the front of the shoulders and the front of the heart and lungs. It was became can become a little bit of a thing where I, I get into a bit of a headspin when we think about heart openers as just the front side of something. Yeah. Right? Because whether we're thinking emotionally or whether we're thinking mechanically, we are three-dimensional, right? So when we're talking about opening the shoulders or opening the heart for back bends, if we're including arm overhead poses, we have to open the upper back. Mm-hmm. We have to do things that actually round the upper back. Mm -hmm. We have to mobilize the thoracic spine in that direction. And the reason that we have to do that, or we don't have to do it, but it's a preference, is because when you reach the arms overhead, the scapula need to be able to laterally rotate. They need to be able to change position. The scapula are not moving towards each other when the arms are overhead. They're moving away from each other. And so there's a lot of people who... The place that they're really tight in their shoulders for arm overhead backbends is actually the place between the shoulder blades. 
And if the place between the shoulder blades aren't opened up because you're just doing chest openers, then the shoulder blades aren't going to be as mobile. And if the shoulder blades aren't going to be as mobile, the upper arm bones, they can't go up as much. They can't, that that shoulder joint can't flex as much. Uh, so upper back openers, even like cat pose, it's so counterintuitive, but cat pose is an incredible preparation for the shoulders when you're doing arm overhead backbends, gomukhasana, garudasana, stuff where you're really stretching open the, the medial upper back area. That's mm-hmm. kind of one big thing. The other more sort of technical mechanical thing that I know that I really overlooked, and this came up in a question yesterday is, I often overlook side bends. I love side bends, but in my sequencing, I just totally own, like, I often just totally forget about them. And then I leave class and I'm like, duh, I was, duh. They feel so good. I should have put another one in there. Yeah. Side bends are really good preparations for back bends, especially side bends in which you are targeting the lats. So one way of doing that is imagine you're in any side bending action, but like a seated side bend of like Parivrita Jhana Shoshasana. If in that pose, you're holding the foot and then you you bend the top elbow, that gets a really good length to the outer shoulder, the outer arm. And the reason that this is, is because the lats do many things, but one of the primary things the lats do is they pull our arms down. When they are concentrically contracting, they are pulling the arms down. So if I have tight lats, then those tight lats might be one of the main things that are making my shoulders restricted in arm overhead backbends. And one of one of the many good ways to get to lats is to include a little bit more side bending early within a sequence. Mm-hmm. If I do too many side bends and too many twists and too many backbends in one practice, it can be a little bit irritating to my lower back and my sacrum just because that's a more sensitive area of my body under those conditions. So I'm not suggesting that you do like an hour and a half of the world's deepest side bends followed by back bends, but a little bit of side bending is a really nice thing to do to target those lats. Do you know my, my psychological theory about side bends? <laughs> I have no idea if there's <clears throat> anyone else feels this way, but I, I have this theory that people are less comparison based in their side bends than in forward bends and back bends. I think that people strive a lot in their forward bends and their back bends. And there's like this ideal in their head of what it's supposed to look like. And we just don't have that with side bends. It's just, it's it's like a plane that we don't move into as much. So people don't have as much attachment to like how it's supposed to look. And so I always felt like when people were getting really agitated in class, like side bends were a really good thing to do. I think similarly about twists, although I twists can be complicated in other ways, but when people do twists, no one expects themselves to just turn in circles in perpetuity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But as someone that as someone that has has motion restriction and forward bends, absolutely because you constantly see the distance between your face and your legs. Whereas in a side bend or in a twist, exactly what you're saying is I think that there's less unconscious vanity ascribed to those things. Yeah. And I also feel like it's just a place where people don't have the same set of expectations or visual imprints. Right. Less yeah. likely to compare yourself. Yeah. I Maybe. think that I think that pop psychology is correct. Thanks. 
Two more small things with regards to preparing for backbends. Both, I think, kind of obvious, to be honest. The first one's super obvious, but it's something we overlook, especially in flow, which is to spend more time on your tight spots and to actually target those tight spots for longer increments of time. What I mean by this is it's unlikely that every part of your backbend has the same amount of need. It's likely that some parts of your backbend need a little bit more help than other parts of your backbend, okay? So you might decide like, oh, I do all of the normal preparations that I do, especially within a flow, but I have a little bit of proportionate additional tightness in hip flexors, or I have an additional kind of weakness or disengagement in my extensors, hamstring, glute family, or man, everything seems to go, but I just got a, a, my mid back just is like a brick, right? So if you're able to identify that, spend a little bit more time there. Now, this leads into that is much easier said than done in a public environment. Right, right, right. But this is a plea then to have an ongoing little bit of a mini home practice. Yeah. If I know from my backbends, right? If I know from my backbends, my mid to upper back is tight, then I can do little other things throughout the day and the morning, afternoon, evening, whenever it is, just to do a little mini practice for that spot. Yep. You know, you see me do it all the time, pretty much every night when we're at homes because I'm usually on the ground on a foam roller or targeting some spot. I'm not in preparation then and there to do a big backbend. I'm in preparation then and there because my backbend has told me this is a part of my body that needs a little bit more maintenance. So doing that additional maintenance as just a normal part of your life is a sensible thing to do. And it will tend to help with your backbends. The other thing is a little bit more high concept, but similar. And this works really well when you're doing some sort of backbend in which the hands and the feet are connecting. So what I'm thinking in this situation is pigeon poses, like the whole family, Ekapadarasha Kapatasana, dancer's pose, like the full-on adult version of dancer's pose where you're reaching the arm behind you, like up and overhead, Uh not next to you. So you're in full flexion. Padangushtasana, Danyarasana. I know we kind of get into certain poses that not everyone is going to have a reference for, but the point is, is when you're working on poses where you need a belt, do many repetitions for short periods of time. Don't do it just one time, all in. Do multiple repetitions where you're working on essentially a lighter a lighter weight. It's weird. In yoga, it's almost like if we compared it to weightlifting, sometimes people are just do, I want to say sometimes, I'd say almost all the time, we do like one rep to its maximum. That's only going to help with certain attributes. There's a lot of physical attributes. That is not going to help. So that one rep to its absolute maximum is going to give you something. Mm-hmm. But do multiple repetitions with m- more belts, with more ease, with more length. make So make the circle bigger. Like if you're making a circle reaching back and holding on, don't think like this is my one shot and I'm going to go to my absolute maximum. 
do it three or four or five times in a row. And then make the first couple of times really easy, really light. Learn to breathe in it. Learn to make small micro motions in it. Because when you do a low weight or a low resistance or a low intensity, you're going to learn things that you're not going to be able to pay attention to when you're hell-bent on it. So I think this is a place where patience and maturity and, and kind of taking the long view of doing these backbend preparations is super helpful. I said earlier, I probably went, I don't know, 12 months or so with doing Urdhva My Urdhva didn't get any worse. I did Urdhva the other day. I did it for a photo shoot. It felt better than it felt 12 months ago because I didn't stop doing everything that was involved in that pose, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not like I just laid f- over, rounded forward over a bolster for the last 12 months. So all of those other things are, those were continuing to be in my landscape. So if you continue to do the lower intensity, but still keep a higher volume of things, you're going to, if you're a more experienced student, you're going to probably keep a certain aptitude for Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I have kind of a low barrier to hit in terms of my orbit on your (laughs) asana. No, you have a nice orbit on your asana. If the camera is positioned in the at the right angle. <laughs> no, you, I mean, anyway, I think you have a nice word. I do too. That's why I married you. Is it? Yeah. So it better, better stay good. I thought it was my calves. <laughs> and your super long hamstrings. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. As Jason mentioned, there is a blog post to go along with this episode. So I will put a link to that blog post on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 180. And if you enjoy the podcast, it really does help if you share it with your friends on social media, or if you give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy your practice.